Shrink Wrap Radio number 833, Sean Giamatti, Ph.D., on Family Therapy with Gender-Sensitive Folk. And now it's time for Dr. Dave and Shrink Wrap Radio. Radio, all the psychology you need to know when just enough to make it dangerous, it's all in your head. And now here's your host, Dr. Dave. My guest today is Dr. Sean Jamate, founder of Quest Family Therapy. We'll be discussing his background and the varieties of work that he does. Now, here's the interview. Dr. Sean Jamate, welcome to Shrink Wrap Radio. Thanks a lot. Good to be here. Yeah, I just I just had a, a lesson from you in how to pronounce your name. <laughs> and uh, because it, the spelling is reminiscent of uh, the actor. Uh, and uh, <laughs> so... So, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I recently interviewed our mutual friend, uh, also family therapist, Dr. Keith Sutton, and he recommended that I follow up with you. He said, you know, you got to talk to this guy. He'll he'll give you a great interview. And uh, and um, so he thought I should follow up with you, especially as someone is doing important work in the field, especially in in uh, those who are, are in the gender diverse community and uh, you've helped make me aware that there's a lot of sensitivity to language in the gender diverse community now i'm a cisgender old guy and, <laughs> and relatively new to the uh, gender diversity discussion so i hope you'll overlook any awkwardness on my part or little mm-hmm. slip-ups that i make and so what drew you to this work? Uh, to work with the trans community in particular, the gender diverse community? Um, well, both, both. <laughs> well, several things drew me to the work. First off, um, I was uh, doing my residency at Kaiser. And the at that time, I was one of the few people there who knew anything about gender and family work. And so I ended up getting families coming from all over Northern California, uh-huh. uh, very far to get to to work with me. And at the time, I'm also transgender, and I was going through my own transition. And my therapist had said, "You know, you should think about doing this work because there's nobody doing this." And I had originally wanted to have nothing to do with working in a field that was too close to home. Yeah, uh, right. Because it it just sort of followed me, and this is where I, I landed, and it's actually really beautiful to be in in this space with with the families and with with uh, kids and adults, as far as that goes. So, yeah. Uh, 
Now, I understand that you're uh, a person who identifies as transgender. And so uh, what can you share with us about your own gender journey? Because yeah. you, you mentioned that you were reluctant to kind of uh, come out in a way and, and yeah, in, yeah. In, in, in this arena and this very, you know, podcasting and so on was really a big yeah, I, um, <clears throat> let's see. Oh, well, just to say a bit about me as, uh, as far as I identify, um, I don't actually identify as transgender, although I have a transgender history. I very much identify as male. Um, and so just as far as languaging goes around that, that would be more how I would see myself. There are some people in the community who do see themselves as trans or trans man or trans woman or that kind of stuff. And, yeah. and for me, that's my my internal sense of self is as male, but I do have a transgender history, so I'll identify as a male who was assigned female at birth is one way that I could yeah. say that. Yeah, yeah, so, and I have a history, and I have I understand the experience of going through this, and and also I would say that every person's experience is very unique. Mine actually started, and part of what actually got me into doing this work, um, at that intersection, I was um pretty what we would call stealth i was not out about being trans like when right. i was going to residency they didn't know my my history they knew i was part of something in the lgbt community because i had a lot of knowledge about stuff but nobody ever really knew and i have a female partner and actually that's one of the beautiful things about my journey is that we went through this together uh, we've been together for almost 34 years yeah so wow so we went through this after I'd we'd been together for quite a while. And um, but I was not out because I didn't want to be known as a transgender therapist. I wanted to be known as a family therapist because that was where my yeah. my love family work and not to have that sort of tag following me. Um, but after the Pulse nightclub shooting, I, um, I it, that really hit me hard. And when that happened, I realized and, and the way it sort of got washed over as not being a gay club, primarily people of color. There's so much about it that was very upsetting to me that I just couldn't be silent anymore. So yeah. I made it to be more out about who I am and to use, you know, that as part of, you know, when I'm talking to people and I'm sharing and I'm teaching, because I used to teach and not share that stuff. And what I realized is when I don't bring my whole self into it, it's a little flat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, at, how old were you when you first realized that uh, that there was this something different about you? Yeah. Well, three. Three was when I told my family. Three. three? <laughs> wow. And but that's not when I transitioned. So I was three. I'm also sixty years old this next week, actually. And so <laughs> the world was very different then. And and. You know, my parents did what most parents do. They told me, you know, oh, no, honey, you're not. You've got these parts, so you're you're actually a girl. And logically, that made sense to me, although that's not how I felt. But yeah. what I did was I all went underground. And I and I, I also had a very tight connection with my Italian roots. And there was a, a, a thing about familia and, and the family being so important. And I didn't want to I didn't want to mess that up. I was trying to figure out how to be good, a good yeah. kid. Yeah. You know? And so it really went underground and it went underground and 
And actually in going underground, I got into a lot of trouble and had a lot of problems. I'm luckily I survived adult to adulthood, <laughs> um, trying to just be okay with myself in the world. And then, um, you know, when I was 34, I had a, what I call an epiphany moment, which everybody has at some point. It's not usually where the journey starts, but it's the moment where we realize, oh, this is a trans experience and I need to do something about it. And actually, I did what most people do when they first find out. I tried to shut it down. Yeah. And it took <laughs> right. about another year before I was like, okay, I can't shut this down. It can't. I can't put it away. I can't make it go away. And I was starting to get depressed and I didn't wasn't willing to go into that space. So then I started exploring the journey of where does this need to go for me? And I really didn't want to transition. That wasn't I, I had learned how to survive by becoming an academic and I had become successful and I I was afraid I would lose everything. And I really didn't want to transition if I didn't have to. But yeah, I allowed right. And the journey took me here, which is I've. <laughs> You know, completely, you know, I walk through the world now. Nobody knows that I'm trans. You know, I just yeah. look like older guy. Yeah, um, right, right. Yeah. We're in such a, a politically, uh, it's so politicized right now. And and what feels like a, a very dangerous, a dangerous uh, moment. And uh, I'm wondering, uh, how are you, you know, maybe you're lucky to live in the Bay Area. I don't know if that... Uh, makes the situation better for you, less dangerous? What's what's your safety meter say at this point? Yeah, I would say, no, not less dangerous. I mean, it is less dangerous to live in the Bay Area, but to be out as a provider of care to youth in this current political climate is very dangerous. And many of us who are doing this work get regular death threats and things like that. So there's a bit of having to protect yourself. Yeah. And, out there that you didn't have to think about as a therapist, you go out there, you just want to help people, you're not thinking about becoming right. a target. And, and there is a piece of that, um, that is a part of doing this work right now. Um, and as a person, generally, I'm, I'm pretty safe in the world if nobody knows I'm trans, you yeah. know, but if into other areas, like, you know, the political climate is so hard, so hard for the families I work with, so hard for everybody. Um, it has been a, a dangerous world all along for trans people, but it's kind of gone up a few notches. And like, if I was to go to Florida at this point with the laws that they have there, it's actually considered a do not travel state for the trans and particularly or the queer community right now around the world, because it's so dangerous. If I was to go there, given their new laws that they're passing, um, if they knew my assigned sex, I could be considered fraud, frauding. And I think it's, they're considering it a felony to have my driver's license say male on it, right? Um, wow. And so, so there are various things like that that are that are um, happening around the country that make it actually hard. I have kids who are trying to figure out where to go to college and half of the country is not available to them wow. to go to college. Yeah, I can so. really understand that. It's, uh, it feels like a dangerous time uh, for, for, for all of us. All of us who ha are have any sort of liberal tendencies, uh, you know, it feels like it's a, it's a, this election that we're coming up into is. Yeah. I, I have a hard time for everybody right now because we none of us feel comfortable in such a divided country. Right. No matter yeah. where you, so it's 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 hard. Yeah. I, I love 
know if you know the work that Bill Doherty is doing and and their group, the Brave Angels, but they're actually doing some amazing work on talking across difference with with uh, um, people from very different political backgrounds, particularly they're looking at politics and different issues and having people come together and talk and actually have dialogues rather than just fighting and, and deciding you're this or you're that based on what the media says around things. So that's I think one of my friends recently maybe I don't know I don't know that organization or the guy's name. Uh, is there an organization that Tra uh, does trainings. I, I think I was sent to a website and I kind of looked into that. What's the name of the organization for our audience? Yeah, Braver Angels. Um, Braver Angels, great. Yeah, my, I've recently learned more and more about what they're doing and I really love what I hear because it's bringing, bringing folks together in a way that, you know, we can learn to respect each other and love each other, even if we disagree on particular topics and actually yeah. be honest about what our positions are rather than having other people tell people. So I know a lot of conservative folks have, have a very distorted view of what liberal people think and liberal people have a very distorted view of what conservative people think. And and certainly it shows up in, in this arena as well. So, Right, right. And Bill's a family. <laughs> That's why his name came up for that around that. That's why... <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so what are the main difficulties that transgender people face today? Now, this may be obvious because it is so political right now. And, uh, you know, we're hearing about uh, in in athletics, for example, that it's a big issue right there. Mm -hmm. um, but on, on your day-to-day -day work that you do, what are you experiencing as the, the main concerns or issues that need to be dealt with? Well, I wear a lot of different hats. So clinically in California, it's a whole lot different than it is in some of the other states, but I also do coaching and various things around the country and internationally. So things are different depending upon where you're you're living. All the same, if you look at the, the, the trans, uh, the U.S. trans survey is a really good one. There was one that came out in 2015. There's one that was just released, but they haven't released all the data yet. So we're waiting to find out what it what it says. But their original version of that was titled Injustice at Every Turn because it doesn't matter what aspect of life you're talking about. Um, transgender people are experiencing a negative impact. You talk about housing, work, school, just walking down the street you know, the level of minority stress and discrimination and oppression and all that kind of stuff is going on. Uh, PTSD as a result of all of those things and an ongoing yeah. Yeah. things, um, you know, that that's going on. Healthcare is huge. So, you know, go there. Um, but what we're seeing also happening in some states across the country is the um, erasure of trans people. Basically, there's a lot of people out there who don't believe that the transgender people actually exist or that we're real. They just see it as pathology and, um, and they're trying to just eliminate all of that. And, and the, the effects of that on healthcare, it's like um, what they did with LGB folks around conversion therapy. They're trying to do with trans folks now and LGB folks around that of trying to convert them to be cisgender. Right. And, you know, no data out there shows that you can actually do that with anybody their identity you can get them to change their behavior but that doesn't change who they are and and so there's 
all of that stuff. There's just so much going on that's just impacting you. As a transgender person walking through the world, it feels like you're getting blasted from every corner. And I will say that it's not just trans folks themselves, but it's their whole system, their family, because families are on the journey as well with them. And they're impacted by all of these things that are going on around them as well, especially in states that are trying to take away parents' rights to decide what's best for their kids. You know, there's there's so yeah. much. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, really. A lot of stress. I would say a lot of minority stress and a lot to deal with in all of yeah, that. Yeah. So your work has really expanded into uh, working with um, people on a, in a, a variety of uh, gender concerns or self-questioning, not necessarily transgender, uh, but but somewhere on the LGBTQ curious <laughs> scale <laughs> and and uh so a lot of what you're doing really is is leadership you mentioned you're going around to different places in the country and different places in the world uh, as as a uh, as a leader and and you do online training of family mm-hmm. therapists to uh, to treat to teach them how to be uh, people who can work with gender diverse people, mm-hmm. uh, and what are, what are the issues that you wrestle with there in terms of tr- trainees and so on, and you know who are the people that sign up for this training? Yeah, I well, you know, I center myself as a family therapist first, yes. and then. You know, specializing also as a gender specialist. So I do a lot of educating. I work for WPATH as well as a, on their faculty. But I also teach in graduate schools uh, around uh, just general therapy and LGBT affirming therapy as well, couples and family work, all that kind of stuff. So when I started doing more trainings out there and I came, became an APAC provider so I could actually offer more to psychologists and actually everybody across the board just to try and help people get what they need and get the training. Um, what I found is that the people who come to my trainings, some people just don't know. They end up with a trans person on their their caseload or a parent or a family member on their caseload, and it's all new to them. And what we do as therapists, we realize um, when we become aware, just like everybody else, that we need information. And so they start seeking information. And one of the things I've done in my work over the last few years is develop, I, I love development you know, like thinking from a developmental perspective. Yeah. And so I, we've created a, a gender journey map for families, and we've also created one for clinicians and what their gender journey is when they're learning, when they first learn about this stuff and realize they need to know something to where they go if they become competent, really confident in doing the work, or maybe even a gender specialist. So there's like a journey that we all go on. And my what I see my work as is sh- taking people from where they are to the next phases of where they want to be on that journey. Some people want to be specialists. Some people just want to know that they're doing really good work with the yeah. communities. Yeah. Uh, so I help people with that. And that's, um, I would say that they come in in two ways. Often, sometimes they just don't know. Um, that's one way, but actually, so three ways. Another is that they're, they are seasoned family therapists and they don't know about gender stuff. And they realize that they need to know more about that. Right. And so, and trying to learn the gender piece of it. Then I have a lot of gender specialists who are really good and they understand the gender stuff and they don't understand the family part. 
you know, some of the biggest struggles when I do surveys of therapists out there, when I ask them where they struggle the most, it's working with families, especially families who are unsupportive and trying to figure out how to do that. And so a lot of my work is is helping bridge that intersection between those two. Um, and that's been sort of where I situate myself in that. There are a lot of people who do individual work. And I believe that no matter how old you are, you have family, you have community, you have a system around you. Right, and we, right. And we have a tendency, and we used to do this with gay and lesbian folks, like somehow when you show up in some a therapist's office, it's just you, this whole idea about you, but that's, it's not, it's this whole system. And, and the more we're held by a supportive system, by our families and our community or our family of choice, the better we do. We're, we're better off together with a group so um, of people that love us. So helping yeah. system show up in the best way possible not only helps the trans person, but it also helps the whole system because regardless of what you do, when you're on a journey, the family's on a journey as well. You can't you can't separate the two unless you ostracize yourselves. And even so, you've made a decision to ostracize yourself because somebody's on a gender journey. So, um, and that's I, a, under, I understand that you're very very flexible in terms of. Uh, how you work with people that uh, you like to transition between maybe seeing uh, the IP, the identified problem person, one-on-one, uh, uh, -on -one, but then you'll transition maybe to the family or to a larger group that's uh, a, a larger group of stakeholders. Uh, say a bit about that. Yeah, I think in this work, you can't, there's several things to know about the work. One, you cannot sit alone in your office and just work with one person because there is a whole system involved and those people are big players in how well somebody does. So if you consider the IP, the transgender person, which it isn't always, you know, sometimes the IP is the whole family. They come in that yeah, way. Yeah. Um, but if that's the person who shows up more often than not, because they need maybe a letter for medical care, or they need just help navigating and figuring out what they need to do. Um, it's really important for us to be able to work with the systems around that person who's in their world. You know, uh, we also need to be able to get out when we're working with kids. You can't work with kids and not work with families. Um, you need to have the parents involved, not just as collateral, but they also have their journey. So helping them on that path is important. It's actually one of the reasons why I started the Trans Family Alliance to help parents navigate their gender journey along the way, um, especially if they aren't working with a therapist to do some of that stuff or in cl collaboration with their therapist to do that stuff. Um, so I think as clinicians, thinking about things in that much broader way is very important. We're also having to deal with medical teams, other kinds of pieces. So when we're in this world, we're in a world that's a medical issue as well, um, more often than not. Uh, well, it depends on who's coming into your office and need medical yeah. care. Yeah. They also, you're working not only with a medical team, you may be helping them get access to resources. You're doing something that looks a little more like social work. Um, yes, you know, yes coaching realm, but it's, and it's bringing the whole family around or the whole system around that person to help make sure they're supported because it's really hard to do this all by yourself. And, and so I, a lot of that work for me is yes, I will work with, like, say a family comes in, they bring in their kid, my kid's having this gender issue. Can you help them? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, but I don't work with just the kid. So we'll, yeah. I'll, I'll spend some time with your kid, but I'm also going to spend some time with you 
And then sometimes I find parents are really struggling and the struggle they're having is harming their kid because they're saying and doing things that is just really hurtful. And they need to have that space to do that. So I'll separate them and I'll have the parents go through their own process around that. And I do family work with them all. So because I also find that parents need to hear from their kids where they're going, they need to really understand their child's journey to be able to make decisions. Um, and, and then, you know, sometimes it's with extended relatives, you know, siblings are really important. In this whole process It's the whole family, um, yeah. siblings get left by the wayside. They can be the best supports or their worst enemy. So we want to know, um, all of those, those pieces. And so I'll work with whatever part of the system needs to come in. I've had kids bring in their friends, you know, <laughs> part of, yeah. that's, that's part of their, their, their family system in their, in their way and, and, and adults as well. Um. You know, and we also have to expand beyond this notion of a very heteronormative family. You know, I have couples that come in that start opening up their relationship and have other partners and things like that and how we think about it in a more polyamorous sort of way or a consensual non-monogamy. So there's various ways around that. And when it comes back to thinking about clinicians and where they struggle, it's sometimes getting out of those boxes and understand yeah. how much they need to sort of open their minds to various different ways that family can can exist and be. And sometimes we we do struggle if we have a particular belief system. And, and that's true whether you're cisgender or transgender. Like I had my own biases that came in. And I and in fact I'm I'm doing a workshop coming up called Unpacking Gender and understanding the you know the, the bias in the therapeutic relationship and that and I do that once a year in part because that's so important for us all to do that kind of work for parents to understand that stuff but also for clinicians to know how our own story and our own narrative feels what we see as possible yeah um, and and I had my own biases that actually limited what I thought was possible for some of my families based on my personal experience and you know, in doing my own work, I've learned to open that up and 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 recognize when those things are ha happening. So I think that's all part of the work we got to do is uh, the self of the therapist work, as I would say. So, or is yeah. And um, when I went to your website, I see that you have a you're not working alone. You've got a, a staff of I don't know how many, but uh, looks like maybe they're people with social work background and so on because it's so relevant to this broad range of services that you're offering. Yeah, I, well, one of the things that happened to me in COVID, I, I think I went a little crazy, actually. <laughs> I started two businesses and expanded my practice out of being just <laughs> So part of it was I couldn't meet the needs of the families. I had 40 families on my wait list, and I couldn't figure out how to help them. And so I started the Trans Family Alliance for parents to help create a space for them while they were waiting to get in with a clinician. And I was hoping I could find them somebody, but there were no clinicians out there that had openings that I could send people to. So people were just sitting on long wait lists. And I wasn't the only clinician having that problem. I was talking to other colleagues around the country, the same issue. And so I thought, well, if we can just have a space for parents, that would be great. But it didn't work to get people off my wait list. And so I then thought, well, okay, I'm going to create more trainings and we'll get more clinicians out there doing this work and we'll get more, you know, they'll, then yeah. there'll be more to send people to, and this will be, that'll be awesome, which I th I agree with. It's it going to be awesome if we get more and more people out there. Um, but it still didn't work to get people off my wait list. And then finally I had a colleague who um, took on a, an associate and was training them in gender affirming care. And I realized, Oh, I could do that. And so I started 
first with independent contractors. And then I had a student come and say, I really want to get my hours. Will you do this with me? And I didn't want <laughs> to do that and take on employees and do all that. But I, I agreed to. And then it sort of blew up from there that I have <laughs> had this full group of associates and independent contractors who are doing gender affirming care, who actually all go through my coaching program. So they're trained in all of this as well and trained and supervised along the way. So it's been, that actually helped get people off my wait list. That was the final thing. So that's how I ended up with so many people in West Family Therapy, but I'm, um, you know, which is very different than the Gender Health Training Institute, which is where my training and coaching programs are. And the Trans Family Alliance is part of that, that, that arm of business. So yeah, yeah. It's, it's, you've got sort of an octopus going here because <laughs> you've got all these different things, initiatives, uh, and it's I have a great um, team and, and you know my team really wants to expand into doing more diversity and equity inclusion trainings for for companies and for mental health and medical maybe even insurance stuff like that so i've i've said i'll support them as they start to build that so they may we may be launching another octopus arm in there but <laughs> <laughs> right 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 yeah. um and let's see what else did I want to ask you about this. Oh, what about uh, for licensure uh, people? There, there are these to get relicensed as a psychologist or as a marriage and family therapist or in other d disciplines. Also, they have their licensing things. And is is gender sensitivity on the to do list? for any of those licenses or, or not? And should it be? I think, I think I'm think i pretty sure you're going to say, yeah, it should, should be. You know, I would say that I think in some states there is some diversity training that people need to do to get to renew their licenses or, at least, or a one-shot deal like they do around suicidality, things like that. I would say if you, it is impossible for clinicians to work out there and not end up with um, an LGBT person on their uh, on their caseload, and we're going to see more and more trans folks. There aren't a lot of people are like, oh, they want to go see a trans therapist. There aren't that many out here. There aren't very many. Most people are going to go see a cisgender therapist, and you may end up with somebody who really has a beautiful relationship with you and comes out on your. And then what do you do? You can't just send them on. Say, oh, oh no, this is something I can't deal with here. I'm going to send you over here. That ruptures this attachment that they built with you and that that's not okay. So um, I think that it should be, I mean, I'm kind of going outside of your question, but it really should be something that is um, required on some level. I mean, I don't know, requirements are a little tough, but you know, when I teach my graduate students and they go through my, I have a semester long course in transgender mental health and they go through that course, which is actually not the deepest dive because we do a very broad brush over everything. All of them are like, we never get this. And if you talk to professionals in their training, they never got it in their training. Um, they There's a lot of nuances to doing the work and it's important to know. And, and all, all my graduate students say, this absolutely should be required as part of our training. So yeah. given their response to that and what they feel like they didn't get, and especially if you're not getting it in graduate school, unless you were lucky enough to go to one of the five grad schools that actually do have a program in that, um, you know, it's really important that clinicians have at least some base knowledge in that because you can do a lot of harm if you don't. And there's a lot of misinformation out there and disinformation. And there's a lot of 
data out there that's being thrown around that sounds good when you look at it on the surface, but when you really take a deeper dive, you realize they're using stuff from the 80s and and not using the current diagnoses as a way of describing something that's actually not happening today, but or to debunk it in some way. And it's it's a misuse of yeah. old old data and a and what we would call disinformation. It's not even misinformation. They're just you know, not telling the truth about what's happening, but it's easy to get captured by that stuff, especially if you have uh, biases and don't understand from the beginning what this is sure. about. That and go, oh my God, and, I, and even parents. Like, if you look around the country and you look that there's been 22 states that have passed bans on gender affirming care in their legislatures, you know, that's almost half of our country. And if you look at that, um, parents go, well, geez, if they're doing that everywhere, it must be true. Right? Uh -huh. Yeah. Same group that keeps going to every state in almost like a boilerplate thing that they go through the legislature. Right. Around. And, and they're using people who are, um, have never seen a transgender person who say that they're not biased and yet they keep showing up with data that's so old and it doesn't, and they ignore all the current data, and they basically say, "Oh, it's activist researchers that are doing this." But it's, and then we're, you have this full support of all the medical communities, except for a few that sound like they're very important communities, but they're they're actually not. They're they're fairly new, and they've been, um, they're funded by very conservative, anti-LGBT groups, and yeah. so. It's hard as a clinician when you're really busy out there and it's not where you spend most of your time to really unpack what's happening. Um, and it can be very easy to believe some of the stuff. And I've, you know, the, the kinds of experiences that transgender people will describe and family members will describe of going to a therapist who doesn't know this stuff and the kinds of things that they'll tell them to do is, is a horrible, you know, um, and and it actually creates an experience where people stop seeking care or they only go because they have to, and then they don't trust you at all. And so it makes it really hard for all of us to do the work because people are coming in scared to even talk to us. Yeah. To get yeah. Right? Are, are there any uh, movies, TV shows, et cetera, that you feel do an excellent job of communicating some of the key issues? You know, there's a lot of them out there. It's funny. I, I show, I do a monthly uh, movie night for the Trans Family Alliance uh, for the parents, and we've been going through a ton of documentaries. And it kind of depends on how you want to how you want to view things. So there's, if you want to look at the um, impact of just the the media messaging and stuff like that, I think. Um, Oh, what was the name of it? I'm I'm gonna blank on it. But there was a a documentary that was oh disclosure, was put out by um, a, a lot of trans people of color talking about Hollywood and how Hollywood has portrayed trans people over time and with that experience, right. yeah, that can be helpful. It's hard to watch for a lot of people. The um, even the gender revolution, which is a way it's a few years ago now that that Katie Couric did on trans youth and talking about what's happening. It was not just trans youth, but it was it was a good they did a good job with that documentary. There's quite a few new ones out there. I mean, there there's some great just personal stories about 
there's some about athletics where where young people who are athletes talk about being athletes and um yeah so there's there there are many you can do a kind of a search you can do the best best of um some of them talk about the experience i mean pose is one of those that's been a, a really good it's a um a show you know i don't remember what what pro what is it netflix or something like that but that uh it, has a lot to do with the documentary Paris is Burning and about the ballroom culture in New York City for trans people of color, particularly trans women. It follows them a lot. And just understanding sort of the experience and what's going on with folks in, in different marginalized and minoritized communities. And I think that's an important factor to also understand is that the experience of a white transgender person in the world is a whole lot different than somebody who's a person of color. And you start adding other minoritized status and the discrimination, oppression, violence, and all the rest of that becomes exponential. Yeah. So it's the, and that's right now we're talking, you know, the whole community is grieving over the loss of a non-binary kid who was attacked in a bathroom, got in a fight and um, don't know exactly what happened, but it appears that they hit their head and, and ended up a day later dying from, um, we don't know whether it was from the injuries of that, but it looks like that all the same. It's another where did, example. Where did and that happen? In Oklahoma. Oklahoma. Yeah. Yeah. A 16 year old kid gotten, uh, you know, was attacked by three girls in the bathroom and they were in a fight with each other. Um, but the end result was a kid ends up dying and it looks like the hard to know, but it looks like there's a lot of cover up. I mean, a lot of stuff that's coming out, I yeah. say cover up that what they're saying is very similar to what they did at the Pulse nightclub shooting. They started making it about something it's not, or saying it's not really this, or, you know, um, I've heard some people blame the kid, you know, like it's his fault. He died in some, sure. as he threw water on the girls who then beat him up <laughs> or them up. I'm sorry. I don't even know. I think their pronouns are they, them. Um, so, you know, the, th those are, those kinds of things are coming up and the, and the, and there's vigils going on around the country right now because everybody's really upset about this happening and and the way it's being treated um and so we'll be watching those kinds of things but um and parents um, are <laughs> cuz did, did, did you did you start to um uh, to give us a statistic i think you talked about you said there was a survey that had come out, but yeah. Well, there's a the uh, there's a survey, uh, the U.S. Um, trans survey, okay. which there's been three of them. The first one is in 2009. The second one came out 2016, and they just did one uh, that was done in 2022. The data is just now coming out, so we don't have all the data yet, especially on the mental health stuff. One of the things that they did show, though, is that because there's this belief that people regret transitioning, like there's a lot of very loud minority that are saying that um, this is terrible. You should never let anybody transition because this handful of people regretted it and said it was the wrong path. And what we have coming out of that survey is that 98 percent of people who had gender affirming care said it was a positive thing in their life that it wasn't there's yeah. very small and actually when we look at like regret weights for surgery there's a lot of concern about that that people are going to regret these these medical interventions that are irreversible 
And um, the regret rates that we have across all the data that we have is for surgical interventions is less than 1%. And for if you look at surgical regret across the US for all surgeries combined, yeah. it's 14%. It's how much? 14%. Uh-huh. You know, and if you look at specific surgery, some of them are even higher than that. And and we don't stop offering care because people don't like the outcome of the surgery or or that kind of thing. But it's so small in this community. It's it's not not that you don't want to pay attention to people who and help make sure people get access to care if they did find out that either their gender evolved to another place or they found out it was not the right thing for them. They should be getting access to care, and it shouldn't mean that we stop offering care to everybody else, the 98% or the 99% who need it, um, who it does work well for, because, you know, the one to 3% had a problem with it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Let me ask you about one of the hot button issues right now, which is around athletics and uh, the idea that, and I've not looked into it at all, so I'm just going from, you know, what's in the media um, mm -hmm. but somebody who, who is competing as a female and who has purportedly has all the, the hormones and so on naturally of a male being, having superior strength, et cetera, associated with being a male. What's, what are your impressions about that? <laughs> And well, do you have a do you have a position on that? Yeah, issue? I have a position. I what I notice is that when <clears throat> transgender people are allowed to be in stuff until they start winning, and as, and if they win something, then somehow they had an advantage um, that was because of their transgender status. And most trans folks in athletics are not the top athletes or the stars in that way. At the same time, <clears throat> there are things to think about around this. A lot of the laws that are happening across the country are happening for youth. And when you talk about youth who have really not gone through a puberty or gone through a very minimal puberty and they block that and they're going through the other puberty, their bodies aren't any different than their cisgender peers as far as their, their strength and their abilities and all that kind of stuff. Uh -huh. What we're concerned about is somebody who's been an extreme athlete you know, we're looking at a, a, you know, Caitlyn Jenner, who was an extreme athlete as Bruce Jenner for a very, very long time. And then, you know, going off of hormones or going, you know, going off of testosterone and onto estrogen did weaken her, but she also has the development, muscle development that's there. So there's something to look at in that, that framework, all the yeah. same. Most transgender people after a period of years, and this has been studied by the medical providers. Um, now I have to say, I'm not an expert in all of the athletic stuff, but I would say what I've learned is that after a per period of two to four years, something in that range, that cisgender women and transgender women are on par with each other around their, their musculature, their abilities and that kind of stuff. And so they're not, the, the, uh, one difference might be stature uh, bigger bones mm -hmm. uh, but i also know women who are on um you know like the uc berkeley basketball team are huge they're extraordinarily tall they're big big women and they they would you know 
be right in line with a transgender woman who's in that space as well. So after a period of time, this is what the, you know, when they started looking at it in the Olympics, they realized that after a period of time, there is no advantage to oh. that. And yet there's another thing to think about. And that is that we all have different physical advantages and disadvantages based on our own genetics and all kinds of other stuff. So if you look at people, I think it was Michael Phelps who had basically webbed fingers. And so he had, oh, a, yeah. right. he had a physical advantage in the pool. They didn't tell him he couldn't compete because he had a physical advantage. Right. But it did, was an advantage. It made him a winner in a lot of ways. Yeah. And he was able to be faster than other people just because of the way his physical, his body was, yeah. what, you know, um, and there was those issues around, uh, um, the I think it was a Kenyan um, runner in the Olympics who they found out was intersex and had a little higher level of testosterone and decided it was unfair, um, you know, that of that. But this is somebody who's not trans, right? Um, mm. and, and we have this issue that, you know, I, I really think when it comes to athletics that maybe we should be be focusing more on on the bodies that are there and kind of like you have weight classes and things like that um and and focusing on some of that stuff because i know some pretty awfully strong cisgender women who, who and and i i think it's unfair to women too to to uh say that they're so that that they actually can't compete on those levels we've had a lot of those gender wars over the years and shown that women can actually compete in certain areas all the same um when we're talking about kids, it's a whole different ball of wax. Yeah, yeah. It's not well, what we're talking Yeah, yeah. I really appreciate the way you've uh, uh, presented a picture that's more complex than uh, than we would tend to, than it would than, than it's been positioned generally. Well, and if you look news. at trans girls, and we're not worried about so much about trans boys. I mean, in Texas, they had this rule that you had to compete based on your assigned sex. So they had a trans boy who was on testosterone. He was winning all of the, uh, he was a wrestler. He was winning all of women's wrestling all through high school. He won everything because he had an advantage and they wouldn't let him compete with boys, which is what he wanted to do. Right. Uh. <laughs> uh, they, you know, like they shot themselves in the foot with that one when it comes to that. But if you look yeah. at kids, and where they are developmentally um, and the level of, of physical strength and things that they have. And you look at trans girls who want to compete, who, you know, transitioned young, you know, in, in like, say, early puberty and that kind of stuff. They are, and most trans girls actually are not into athletics, but those that are don't tend to be your super buff boys that then become girls that's not not how it usually works um and so when you look at those kids you see they're just on they're they're no different they're not they're right on par and a lot of our athletics even young athletics is co-ed right yeah and, and a particular time where it feels like it's not not fair um so well we are living in a very complex world and you have definitely uh, help us to understand uh, some of that complexity. And uh, I think it's wonderful work that you're doing and I re really encourage you to keep it up. Is there anything that we haven't touched on here? I don't want you to feel shortchanged. And darn, I wish we had got into blank. 
<laughs> we covered a lot of lot of territory, actually. Um, I guess what I would say is that um, in just speaking to the various pieces of things that I'm doing, yeah. Um, you know, when it comes to the training, I offer a lot of free stuff out there. So I would say if you don't know anything about that, there, there's access to stuff so you can start learning about what the standards of care are and working with families and various things like that. And you can get CEs too as well. I also do a lot of deeper dive workshops. So the deep dive workshops are really hands-on experiential learning how to work through stuff on both gender health evaluations and writing letters, unpacking gender, a lot of other things that I'll be offering coming up. Um, but the Trans Family Alliance is one I'd really love to talk a, a little bit about, which is is that parent support community. And it's not it's actually an educational community more than a support. We have support. We have live meetings. But there's there's a whole there's hundreds of hours of educational videos for parents for them to learn and figure out their way along their own gender journey. And I think as clinicians out there, it's really important to know that there's a resource out there that that can really support your work with the families you work with, especially if you tend to be more of a child therapist and you want to work with the kid and you're not uh, uh, sure you you know how to bring the parents in or you only do collateral work. It's really important that they get connected. And we know that parents do so much better when they have the support of other parents who have been on the journey with them. And I also know that parents will balk against that initially, um, but understanding that it's an educational space as well can be really helpful. So I'd like to, you know, like really let people know that that's there. And it's it's actually an international group, but it most of the parents are in in the U.S. and um, even more so in the West Coast because that's where I started it. So, um, so but pe it is people can find links to this on your website, right? Yeah, if they go to, I mean, the Gender Health Training Institute.com is one and transfamilyalliance.com is another. Um, my other, Quest Family Therapy is my practice, which is very California-centric, but the rest of it is is national and international. So, And I okay. and also a coaching program for folks who really want to get into, I mean, that's part of the fun of what I ended up creating at the Gender Health Training Institute was not only courses and workshops, but for people who really want to learn this stuff and do you know, kind of move on their their skill set, um, particularly at the intersection of family and and gender, is the the coaching and mentorship program that's there. So that's that's a lot of fun as well. It's available. Okay, so to find, is there sort of one place where they can get a, a find they can start their journey into all of this information? I would say, as clinicians, go to the Gender Health Training Institute. And you'll see something. There's a link there for parents that'll take you to the Trans Family Alliance. If you go to the Trans Family Alliance, there's a link for professionals. that will take you back to the Gender Health Training Institute. So they both they they coordinate with each other. I'm not sure that my clinical site actually has all of the links there. So okay, okay. Um, maybe you can when we get off the air, you can send me the links that you would want me to have in the show, and then it'll yeah. help me. Then, I'm, then I'll make sure I can do that. Yeah. And and uh, so, Dr. Sean, you got to teach me to say your last name again. Jamate. Jamate. Dr. Sean Jamate, thanks for being my guest today on Shrinkwrap Radio. Well, thanks for asking me. This is fun. Yeah, for me too.
Once again, I was fortunate enough to have a stellar guest. I'm referring to Sean Giamatti. He's a family therapist who happens to be a member of the transsexual community. In fact, he mostly wants to be remembered and thought of as a family therapist since that is his longtime passion. At the same time, he was very open to my questions about what his life has been as a trans person. He said he was aware at the early age of three years of being different than other people, but he had no tools for understanding what that meant or how he could integrate that knowledge into his family. He was born with the genitalia of a female, but experienced himself early on as being in the wrong body, so to speak. He's on the cusp of turning either 50 or 60. I had trouble understanding which because of my own hearing problems. He has pretty much lived his whole life as a male and in fact is married to a woman. They've been happily married for many years. According to his driver's license, he is a male. At the same time, he shared with us that there are states such as Florida where there would be a danger of him being criminally prosecuted for fraudulently representing himself. I was a little bit anxious going into the interview about whether or not I might stumble into some inappropriate languaging because, as he had alerted me before our interview to how sensitive the transgender community is about language. It's never been easy for transgender people, but we are in a politically fraught time in which there is a very real danger lurking about, despite the fact that I was a little nervous going into the interview about possible missteps that I might make, I actually quickly felt very comfortable speaking with Sean. In fact, his work has evolved to be focused not just on the transgender community, but people all along the gender spectrum. His family therapy work is very systems-oriented, and as a consequence, he may at times meet with individuals, perhaps the parents, and then switch to being one-on-one with someone who has been identified perhaps as the identified patient, and then going back to a systems approach with a group of people that might include family or friends or the larger system. Sean's services are in great demand, and it has led to him developing so many sub-businesses that his work almost seems like an octopus. One of the arms of that octopus has to do with him providing training for therapists who want to be able to deal with gender issues confidently and authoritatively. And the shortage of trained workers in this area is such that Sean is recognized as a leader in many different parts of the country and the world. So he's very busy and in great demand as a speaker, a workshop facilitator, and a consultant. As a result of our interview, I have great respect for Sean and the importance of the work that he's doing. Go to our show notes for links to additional information. Hi, Dr. Dave. This is Pete from Andalusia. Just ringing to say that my partner Sue and I have been listening and learning from your podcast for a year or so now. Feel increasingly guilty that you were working your socks off for us giving while we were just taking. Now we can continue benefiting from your efforts with an easy conscience. Well worth a donation. Well, 
That's all. I just say, may your microphone never go dry, Dave. We'll continue listening. Ciao. Ciao, Peter, there in Andalusia. I have such fond memories of that part of Spain when I was a young man. Peter, thank you for encouraging others to stand up and follow your fine example. Time once again to shrink wrap it up. Big thanks to today's guest, Dr. Sean Giamatti, for sharing your personal experiences as a transgender person and international expert on family therapy for folks all along the gender diversity spectrum. Next week, I'll be speaking with Arash Javan Bakht, MD, about his book, Afraid, Understanding the Purpose of Fear and Harnessing the Power of Anxiety. So until then, this is Dr. Dave reminding you to be kind to yourselves, others, and our precious earth. You've been shrink-wrapped by Dr. Dave. All the psychology you need to know, and just enough to make you dangerous.